born in what I now call the late great state of California. Uh, my home city is San Francisco. Now, I'm not proud to claim that now, but I'm still a Niners fan and a Giants fan and a Warriors fan. And did you know that Steph Curry, who is my favorite basketball player, how many of you know who Steph Curry is? Do you know that he attends an Assemblies of God church sometimes? He's a, he's a, so he must be okay, right? If he, he's one of our own. But anyway, just this last week, I, I think it was this week, or maybe it was the week before, that the enlightened governor of California is now legalizing magic mushrooms as if we didn't have enough things that can intoxicate us in, uh, in the state right now. Another thing I heard that was really discouraging that in a uh, recent survey, 51% of uh, young adults are open to the idea of having open marriages now. So those aren't really such good things, are they? But there is a, an awakening that's happening that's very positive at the same time. It was this last week, some of you might have heard it on the news, that there was a, um, I'm going to call it a revival that broke out at Auburn University. And after that meeting that they had, where thousands of students were in attendance, 200 students were baptized as Christians. And um, closer to home, right here at UNLV, I know or I've met uh, the, one of the directors of the Chi Alpha. That's the Christian student ministry that's there. And in their Christian student ministry uh, there right now, they have 200 that are actively involved in it. So those are all good things that are happening. And, and around the world, um, you know, we, we are seeing signs of it in our own country. But I mean, it is popping and it's happening in other countries right now. You know that I'm going to throw a dart here and guess that maybe 50 years ago, maybe it was 75, I'm not sure, in Asia, we're talking about uh, Indonesia, China, Japan, the Philippines, those countries, it was about 1 to 2 percent of the entire population that was Christian. Today, it's nearly 20 percent. That's exciting, isn't it? In the continent of Africa, that this is including all of Africa, the Islamic northern countries like Egypt and um, Morocco and those countries, as well as sub-Saharan Africa, there is now, Africa is now more than 50% Christian. And one of the uh, Islamic mullahs said, this has been a little while back now, but he said not too long ago, if we don't stop this movement of Christianity in Africa, Islam is going to become extinct. Wouldn't that break your heart? You see? So here we are in this, uh, in, in this uh, world that is a, uh, a world where, honestly, we could be at the very end of the end of history as, as we know it. And the next event that is lined up in biblical prophecy is the rapture of the church. How many of you know what the rapture is? 
Okay, okay, everybody. Because some of you that I don't recognize, so I don't even. Know, I might be using some terms you don't know, but that is the catching away of the church just before the last belch of hell takes place in this world, the great tribulation, and then the second coming of Christ. And uh, I don't know what that rapture is going to look like, but I heard an interesting description of it this morning. When I was watching someone on television, this was very early when I was thinking about the service today and preparing, finishing preparing for it, um, that the rapture will, could, this could well happen, that you will have a father or a mother, for that matter, that's an unbeliever. And they're taking their young child out to the park to swing on the swing. And they pull back the swing and let it fly. And the child doesn't come back. Caught away in the rapture. Well, something like that is going to happen when that happens. And so that's what we look forward to. We don't get discouraged. Now, Last week, and I, I talked to somebody before the service that said they watched it last week, but some of you probably didn't. Um, uh, the title of the message, and it's a two-parter, is um, Four Divine Mandates. And you could use, for mandates, I could put some synonyms in here. Mandates, priorities, orders of creation. These are four uh, mandates that God has established that are things that we are to tend to in this world, in this life, as we're serving the Lord and wanting to win as many people as possible to the Lord. So I'm going, if you, I'm going to do this in two minutes. For some of you that weren't here, I'm just going to race through the first four mandates. So we're going to go through these slides real quick, and then we're going to pick up on the last two mandates. Uh, I won't read these scriptures as we go through them, but we're going to name the mandates. And on one, uh, that is the um, uh, second one. There was one thing I intended to mention last week that I didn't, that I want to uh, pause on that one just very briefly as we move along. But mandate number one, I'm calling it ecclesia. That is the Greek word for, that translates church. But it literally translates assembly or gathered community of believers. And so when Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. It's the assembly. And the reason I chose this word is the church comes in a lot of different forms and sizes. Some of them are underground churches. Some of them are house churches. Some of them are cathedrals. Uh, but they are all the church, the ecclesia, the gathered community of faith. Now quickly, I won't read it. This is the passage of scripture that we looked at last week where Jesus is stating to Peter that he's going to build the church upon uh, Peter. Now, I will read these. I won't comment on them. But these, this is part of the mission and the heart and the core, uh, well, mission again, of the church. The church represents the pathway to salvation. We're not saved by believing to the church, in the church, but it's the pathway that God uses. The, the church is the guardian of the faith. It provides the guardrails that keep us in bounds 
of who we are and what we should believe. And I mentioned last time that for me in my daily devotions that my prayer time starts with reciting the Apostles' Creed. That just sets the boundaries of whose I am and what I believe. The third one is insight for living. We need direction. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. Scripture speaks to us. But the message of the church clarifies and gives us the insight for living in decisions that we face and priorities we need to establish. It is a witness to the truth. I put that one on the list because truth is weirder than it used to be now. But God's word and his truth stands forever. Evangelism, winning the lost. The best news I've heard since I was here last time is, is this year you have baptized eight people. Praise the Lord for that. That's winning people to Christ. It is a moral compass in our life. The church and the message of the church provides us with that direction and that clarity in an age of confusion. You could put it this way. The church points you north in your life. It is a source of help and support when we have needs, whether it is for food or support or prayer or help moving or encouragement. The church is where we turn. And it builds community and fellowship. That was number one. Let's move to number two. You are, well, you are a gifted people. The church operates by the gifts of the Spirit in our life. And here's a scripture that goes with that. And you can catch up on that on your own. Whoops, I got excited and hit too many buttons there. Second is marriage and family. Marriage is an order of creation. And the family, ideally, but not always does it work out this way, the nuclear family is the way God created and ordained the fam uh, family to be. It's the oldest institution there is. It's older than the Bible. It's older than altars. It's older than priests. It's older than temples. There was the family. Now, the one thing I wanted to add to this, and I'll just race through these scriptures. These are scriptures. If you want to look them up yourself, you can. Um, uh, I'm going to race through this. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to speak to on this that I did not speak to uh, last I don't know where that one came from let me back up here a second last week not everybody is married not everybody has children and I know that uh, Paul didn't even want to be married as far as we know he never was married um, but he certainly wasn't married at the time he was writing the letters uh, that are in the New Testament that he penned. But you view that situation in your life as a special calling. Paul, never married. It wasn't that he was against marriage, but he was a man on a mission. And having a wife and family wouldn't work for him. That was his mission in life. I could give you a story, but I won't right now. I could give you many of them. Um, if, if you're serving the Lord alone, maybe you've never married, maybe there's been a divorce, or maybe uh, you are widowed, uh, there's this nether direction God has and a calling he may have on your life. Or maybe you're childless. And um, when I was teaching at Bethany University, this is years ago now, 
There was a young couple in the church, Mike and Bonnie Rosenborg. And Mike and Bonnie were newly married, but they had a call on their life. They felt called to go and bring the gospel to some of these um, lost Amazon tribes people uh, in, in South America. Places that have never had a, a witness, a Christian witness yet. Mike and Bonnie had a young daughter. Now they thanked the Lord for that daughter, but they didn't know how they were going to be a parent and fulfill this call. Well, as it happened, that daughter got sick and passed away. Okay? And Mike and Bonnie, they had since graduated from the college and came back and they told me. I was one of their instructors that they had had uh, there at the, at the school. They said, you know, I was, uh, th those were, that's when I was a professor, so it was Dr. Stewart then, okay? So I have the pastor, doctor, Stan, I go by all these names. But they called me for my professor's name. And they said, I know that what you all are sorry for it happened in our life. But said, you know, Bonnie and I, we have a call on our life where we couldn't have fulfilled that call if we had a child. And we thank the Lord that he gave us this beautiful daughter for two years. And yes, we miss her. We love her. But we, will know, we know we will see her again. But we believe that the Lord gave us a taste of that beautiful little girl that we will meet again because there was this call on our life that required us to give our exclusive focus to that. Now, I'm not trying to say whether they had it right or not. I'm just saying that's what they told me. And you know, there's a special calling that God puts on our life. Okay, now we're ready to go to the next, three, uh, next two mandates. Mandate number three is citizenship. We are called to be productive citizens in the country, in the culture, in the civilization where we are. The person who sparked these ideas for me, I mentioned last week, was a man who lived in another crisis time in the, in the uh, years of Adolf Hitler in Europe. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he named the four mandates. Uh, the first one, where I called it ecclesia, he called it church. The second one was marriage and family. The third one that I'm calling citizenship, he called government. The fourth one... Um, that we will get to is vocation. And I left that the way he named it. It's essentially the same thing. I just, I'm just kind of renaming it to kind of streamline it for what we're saying right now. And here's a, here's a scripture that goes with this. And so we're going to take a little longer to get through this now. Still won't keep you over time. You'll still be home in plenty of time for kickoff, whatever team you're following today. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now let me say something about Bonhoeffer, then I'll say something about Paul, then I want us to plug this in. Bonhoeffer was one of the great theologians of the, of the 20th century. And uh, he, was, he died for his faith. He was a martyr when he was 39 years old in Flossenburg prison. He was hung to death uh, because of his resistance to the Nazi regime. Um, before that, though, he, he had written a number of books, 
I could list them off to you, but that's beside the point because I want to get to the point. But the unfinished manuscript that was going to be his great contribution was entitled simply Epics. But he was not finished with that manuscript when he was arrested and imprisoned. And it was the, the draft copies of the unfinished manuscript that were gathered together and published in a book that is now Ethics. And within that, he listed these four divine mandates. And he was writing these as a person who was protesting the evils of the government that he was in the country he lived in at that time. And these mandates are the four priorities that every one of us as Christians are responsible to pursue and fulfill as God works out His will and His plans and purpose in the context of our life together, whether it is a church or whether it's citizens of a nation. Now, it was a hard swallow for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to look at Romans 13 and 1 and say, there is no authority except that which God has established Hitler was clearly a bad, bad guy. But he was not any worse than Nero, who was probably the most corrupt and narcissistic emperor that Rome ever had. That was Nero. He was using Christians as torches, rolling them in pitch, lashing them to a pole, and staking them to the ground to light up his garden parties. And Paul says no authority has been established except God has allowed it. Now here's a question. Do people get the kind of government that they deserve? And I would say to a large extent, sooner or later, yes they will. And I'll say more about that in just a second. But here's another passage of Scripture. When there, and this is from the New, uh, New Living Translation. That's what the NLT stands for. When there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily. But wise and knowledgeable leaders bring stability. Does that sound like it can describe our country today? We need strong and stable, godly leaders. Not just in terms of presidents, but in the halls of Senate. I'm so disgusted by all the corruption and bribery. And another one broke this last week. And as citizens, we're working to see godly principles and stability reestablished in Overton, in Las Vegas, in Nevada, in America. Because it's only on that kind of a foundation that we can see true prosperity and faith and moral compass and right values that are directing our land again. So this is an important thing to remember. I'll back up here a second. Let me say something about our own country and our government. Um, I taught American government for several years first at Bethany University and then at Southwestern Assemblies of God University. And I came to believe, as I was reading through our Constitution, it is almost divinely inspired. It's amazing 
how it takes into account so many of the factors that are necessary. Yes, it's cumbersome. It's hard. It's, it's, it's not easy. A better form of government would be one theocracy. That is when we are in heaven and God is the theocratic king and he just tells us what to do. But we're not there yet. Now, democracy is wonderful. But there are certain things. There was another class I taught. It was one of my favorites. It was called World Political Systems, in which we reviewed the, the various political systems in, in countries around the world. And one of the things I recognized, in fact, there was a long list, and I'm not going to give you the whole list here now. Democracy, or, or more than democracy, a constitutional republic, which is what we have, works, but it requires certain ingredients if it's not going to fly apart and turn back into some kind of banana republic um, uh, authoritarian state. Now there's a long list, but I'm going to just give you uh, three or four or five, whatever comes to mind here right now. First of all, for a constitutional republic to work, there needs to be free and fair elections. Pretty basic, right? Second, for a constitutional republic to work, you have to have an informed electorate. You just don't vote what feels good for me right now. I think it was, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said one time after they walked away from the Constitutional Convention. And he was asked about, he asked, what kind, of, what, what, what kind of government have you created? He said, a republic. If we can hold it together. And one of the problems is, as soon as these people know that they can vote themselves money, they will vote the republic into bankruptcy. Sound like something that could be happening right now? An informed republic. Our informed uh, electorate is a second thing that is, that is important in this. An another thing is there has to be core moral values. I'm calling it spiritual consensus of some sort. We have to have certain things that, we, that are just our common shared values that we hold in common together. A fourth thing is there needs to be a vibrant middle class, which has been the strength of our country for so long. If you don't, again, you get like to the Latin American uh, banana republics where they're all trying to break into our country right now because you have less than 5% of people that own 95% of all of the, of the wealth of the land. There's another whole list of things that goes on on this. We, there has to be a measure of civility where we don't go out and start fighting every time we don't get our way because there's another election coming, a free fair one. See, Well, these are just some of the things that are there. Now, we're called to citizenship as Christians. That means we are called to be involved, not just wringing our hands, or waiting for the uh, fire and brimstone like came to Sodom to fall on us. We've got millions and millions of Christian people in this country. And we need to realize that this is a land that God has given us. Far from perfect. 
And I would have students every once in a while say, yes, but look at all of the bad things about America. How can you be so arrogant as to believe that God would have anything to do with our country? Well, name me another country that might be in better shape that God might be working through. We're all sinners, aren't we? But we have this calling to citizenship with, within our lives. Now, what, does that, what to, shape does that take? Well, for one thing, it means that we are constructively involved in, uh, in our communities. Uh, I just think one of the great things that's happening, part of this backlash that's underway right now, is these mama bears in America. They're roaring off to the school board meetings to challenge some of the nutty stuff. That is, it's more than nutty, it's destructive stuff that's being taught to children in the schools. God bless them. Let them keep going at that. Uh, we need to be involved in elections and voting. That is a privilege that we have, whether it's our local city council person or the school board or whether it's national office. We need to be involved in, the, in those ways. We need to find great humanitarian causes where we can help people out. Do you know that the most charitable body of contributors to need within our country is the Christian church. Now, they're not all assemblies of God, and some of you might have problems with some of them there, but you know that the largest network of hospitals in the United States are the Catholic hospitals. Um, I was on the um, accrediting team for the accrediting, regional accrediting association for all the schools, colleges, and universities in uh, uh, California and Nevada were a part of that, is the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. That might include Arizona also, I'm not sure. But I was, when I was at Bethany one year, I was chosen for one year to be on the, um, uh, on the accrediting team that was traveling to these different colleges and universities. Uh, to, they go to all of them just to make sure that they are uh, keeping their standards up to what the accrediting association is, was. This is what stunned me. And, and ours was just a slice of a few schools in California. But what I learned, that in California, over half of all of the colleges and universities in the state started out, and many of them still are, faith-based Christian colleges and education. Well, that's part of citizenship that is there. See? So we find our way to plug in. One of the great humanitarian causes, and, and we support it, I, I guess this church does too, is Convoy of Hope. Uh, the head of Convoy of Hope, um, Hal Donaldson, uh, was one of my students years ago when I first started teaching at Bethany. Now he's the head of Convoy of Hope, and wherever there is a disaster around the world, Convoy of Hope is there. They're in Maui right now. Uh, they, they go all over the world. So there's that aspect of our citizenship as well, that we're called to be 
good citizens and support the government. Now, I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I probably won't vote for him again. Probably most of you are in that same boat, but that's not the point. I pray for him every day because he's the leader that God has established. And the first thing I pray for is that God will give him wisdom and turn his heart towards the Lord and the things of God. See? So what I'm saying here is we find constructive ways to work within this political system that God has given us. If we don't, and the rapture doesn't happen very soon, we will look back on the late great United States. But it's not over yet. And there are things we can do. So let's move to the fourth one now. Mandate number four is vocation. Here in Genesis, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now for some of you, this is not good news. You thought heaven was going to be an eternal vacation. You would float on clouds, strum your harp, pet your sheep. Is there anybody here that wants to do that forever and ever, world without end? Before the fall, Genesis chapter 2, this is in the perfect state. The Lord put the man, and Eve too, in the garden to what? To rest? To work it. As long as we draw breath, and then in eternity after, there is vocation. In eternity future, Scripture tells us that we are going to rule and rest with Christ? What is the word? Rule and reign. We're going to judge angels. What we're going through now is preparation. Who knows? Maybe we are the ones that God is preparing to replace the fallen angels, a third of heaven, that fell when Lucifer rebelled. We don't know. So all I'm trying to say is you better learn to like your work because there's more of it coming. Okay. Next verse here, out of Proverbs. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So, we're here for vocation. There's one more scripture here that goes with this. Put God in charge of your work. Then, whatever you've planned will take place. And then there's one other scripture here, and I'm just going to read it. It's in, it's in a modern-day translation. But it's going to speak for itself. This is out of the message. Now, this is for workers and for employers, employees and, employees and employers, servants, synonym, employees, 
respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do, and work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter what happens to be giving... Who, happen, who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of whether you are slave or free. Bosses, masters, employers, it's the same with you. No abuse, please, and no threats. You and your employees are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. Is that clear enough? Does it speak for itself? Now one of the things that is in crisis and on the bubble in our constitutional republic and in this culture that is in crisis is the dignity and the purpose of work. I've thought for a long time. Now, I'm a big-time sports fan. Okay? I just loved watching the Niners smoke the Giants on Thursday. We had some family over, and it was great. All that said, there's got to be more than just making $100 million to the meaning of life. We've become too monetized. Okay? And I think that applies to us as well. And I've been following this United Auto Workers strike. Now I've got a word for the workers and I've got a word for the CEOs. Now this, these numbers I'm about to give you are roughly correct. The average CEO of a Fortune 500 company in the United States, they make between 350 and 400 times as much as the journeyman workers. Does that sound right to you? In Japan, let I'll just pull somebody out of the sky here. The CEO of Toyota makes about four times as much as their fully endowed workers. Seems like more of a balance there. But it's all about give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Now, one of the things that made America great, when I taught American history, there was a question I would ask the class. And they would have little discussion groups. What, what, what do you think made America great? And there's a lot of things. First of all, is where our core foundations and values were founded. Okay, that's our faith in God. But... Another thing was what is called the Protestant or the Puritan work ethic. Those Puritans, they never were a majority. And then they got bashed not too far down the road and it kind of devolved into congregationalism. It was there. But they felt that your work was a divine calling and a divine responsibility. And you work 
as a form of service and ministry to the Lord for the upbuilding of the community. Now, some of those Puritans made a lot of money. They didn't just go out and build 20,000 square foot mansions. But they would plow it back in to this errand in the wilderness that they had. They felt that they were a city on a hill and it was their calling to conquer their new Canaan, their promised land, and lead people to Christ. And that work ethic caught fire in this country. And a famous Frenchman, his name was Alexis de Tocqueville, in 1830 he took a tour of the United States wanting to see what this experiment in America what was making it tick because it was all the rage in Europe of what's going on in this fledgling country that was here and one of the things he took note of is this work ethic and the spirit of community and mutual help to one another and in 1830 when we were still just getting our feet on the ground he made a prediction that was slightly wrong, slightly understated. He said, with the work ethic and the values and the spirit of community and the faith that the people in this country had, he said, by the turn of the year 1900, this will be the leading industrial country in all the world. He was wrong. We were number one by 1896. These things that we're talking about, these divine mandates of a faith that guides us as a people, the ecclesia, the church. It's not about the uh, um, brick and mortar buildings, but that community, that assembly, that dynamic community of faith. Marriage and family and home following true north. Which is how God ordained it. As a marriage between a man and a woman. And children. And creating new generations of believers and Christians that rise up. And third, by citizenship, being involved in... Uh, the upbuilding and taking responsibility for it. And fourth, vocation. One last thing. I promise to be quick. But it's putting this in a theological perspective. Keep your eyes on the prize. God's not through with you. God's not through with us. And sooner or later, let's suppose the rapture's still a hundred years off. I promise you, the evil that we see running rampant today, that will crush and fail to just like Adolf Hitler. Okay. Just like the Soviet Empire. That will crash and burn also. But the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God will rise up and triumph once more. Now, a couple verses here, and then we are done. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. This is Paul speaking. And Paul was something of a sports fan. 
Maybe that's why I like them so much. Okay? It wasn't NFL or NBA, but it was the Greek games, mostly track and field. You know, the Olympics started in Greece, and he was in Greek territory. So keep that in mind in, in these verses. It's not, and, and when he talks about the prize or the crown in these verses of Scripture, there are two words for crown, and that would be what translates prize here in the 14th verse. There is diadem which is a royal crown. That's not the word for crown he used. Another one is Stephanos. And that's the victor's crown. That you are crowned when you win in the competition that you're engaged in. Not that I have already attained all this, but I press on. Think of a runner running through the wall, pressing on. To take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Every one of us have a plan, a purpose, a destiny God has in store for us. But it doesn't always fall into your lap like low-hanging fruit. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead... I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's a finish line that we're supposed to cross. Let me backtrack for just one moment. You are never in a state in this life where God is done with you and there's no vocation for you. It might shift. One of my favorite illustrations of this Angie Tedesco, in the year 1978, I was just a 27-year-old pastor getting started. She was already a shut-in, living in her trailer. Bedfast, had a, some this stomach disorder. And I went to visit Angie, and I would go see her often. And she said, Pastor Stan, I just need to tell you, I just wish there's more that I can do, but I can't even get out of bed anymore. All I can do is lay here in bed and pray. That's all you can do, Angie? Is there anything more important than having a ministry of prayer? There's always something God has for us to do. If you're bored or feeling like you're, uh, you're over or something, wrong! God has something for you. Whether it's babysitting or homemaking or a tradesman or a plumber or a teacher or a, a, a volunteering, retired person plugging in. You've got that to go. Next scripture. And he, this is important. It speaks for itself again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is war. Now, there was another scripture that I thought I would put up, but it just seems too harsh. How many of you know what's in the book of Joshua? You've read Joshua before. It's kind of hard to swallow in how those, what those Jews are supposed to do when they marched in and they conquered the Jebusites and the um, Amalekites and everything in, except the parasites. Okay? Take no prisoners. 
Kill them all. And I came through that in my devotions. It was in the spring. And I always struggle through that. This time, I thought I got an answer from the Lord. Now, I'm not saying it applies to you, but I'm saying this is how the Lord spoke to me about it. Lord, why? Why? And, and it wasn't an audible voice, but I remember exactly the words that came to mind. They had to be destroyed. That sounds harsh. But the reason why they had to be destroyed, if they were coddling and playing footsie with all of the idolatry and immorality, they would soon get swallowed up in it and their distinction of following the revealed word of God would be something lost in their life and their special calling and standing would be over. Now, I'm not saying that we need to lock and load and go out and shoot sinners. Okay? Uh, that, that didn't work. But I am saying that those forces that we are up, ag up against were not to compromise with them. We're not to try to say, well, if we just give an inch here, maybe we can all get along. Have you ever known the radical evil in our world today to be satisfied when you take a step backward? They force you back another step. We take a stand. Now, last verse is here. It's in Ephesians again. Stand firm then. These, this is our heavy artillery. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Live not by lies. Lies always self-destruct and they lead to ruin. Have buckled around your waist the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Not compromise with sin in your life. Yes, we are saved by grace. No, none of us are perfect yet. Now, you've experienced this in your life. How many of you have been struggling at some point in your life with something you knew was wrong and it just clogged the channels of you being able to communicate with God or hear from God? The breastplate of truth in place with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Don't just sit there. You're in action. Your feet are fitted. You're on the move as a voice and a force for what is good. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. We always have to take a step of faith in the direction of something we can't be actually objectively certain of yet. But as we take that step of faith, that's how God moves in. Think of it this way. You're in a car. You're driving through the desert. Faith has never, or rarely I should say, manifests itself to me ahead of time as I look through the windshield. But when I look in the rearview mirror and see where I've been and what God has done, 
that confirms the validity of the step of faith that I took. The step of faith would extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. God's got your number. You are secure. You don't have to live in fear of eternal insecurity. I'm not a Calvinist here talking about predestination. I'm just saying um, Christ has purchased your salvation and your salvation is a helmet that you wear. Take up the... Uh, wait. Helmet of salvation. Did I, did I backtrack for a second there? Well, oh, I didn't. Let me finish. Take up the shield of faith, which distinguishes all, and take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So there it is. Four divine mandates. Load up. Take the offensive. Be confident. Be certain. Because God's got great things in store for you, for us One final illustration. I promise I'll shut up. Reminds me of the story I heard one time about a little boy that went to church with his grandfather. And he was sitting there and he couldn't understand all the big words the pastor was saying. And as the sermon droned on and on, the pastor said, and in conclusion, I would like to say, and the little boy tugged on grandpa's sleeve and said, Grandpa, what does conclusion mean? And Grandpa said, not a thing, son, not a thing. Okay. I, I, I like to read. And the president that I, he's just been one of those flyover presidents for me forever. It was Calvin Coolidge. How many of you even remember who Calvin, Calvin Coolidge was? Nobody. Okay. He was from 1923, no, 1920, 1920 to 1929. Stuff and all that. But they did believe in big government and they tried to tell Americans what to do. Sound familiar? And the country was tired of all of this. And Calvin Coolidge was a very meek man, grew up in Vermont, and nobody ever thought he would amount to anything. He was called Silent howl, because he spoke so few words. Once he was president, the story is told that he was hosting a banquet. And some guest, I don't know who it was, had the honor of sitting next to Calvin Coolidge. And a person who knew this person who was sitting next to him said, I bet you won't be able to get him to say three words. And this guy confidently said, I think I can. So they're sitting at the banquet, and this person sitting next to President Coolidge said, I have a bet with a friend. He said, I won't be able to get you to say three words. And Calvin Coolidge looked at him and said, you lose. 
But he was a very meek president. Didn't push himself to the front of the line. One of the reasons why he is remembered with such fondness, one thing is he had the opportunity to run for another term. He came into office when um, uh, Millard Fillmore died in office. And he could serve out his term, then he could be reelected, re and he was. But he would have been eligible to run for a second full term himself. And he declined because he said, you know, having over 10 years of one person in the presidency is just too much. I better not. Wouldn't it be refreshing if we had some people that would do that now? But he broke the spine of that progressive era. He deregulated things. He um, gave more freedoms. Uh, he repealed a heavy income tax that had been as high as 95% under Woodrow Wilson. You know, and the country just soared. And you know, this is an interesting, I had to look this up on my own. Many, there was a revival of evangelical conservative Christianity. Many of our Bible colleges, the one I taught at, used to be Glad Tidings Bible Institute, Bethany University, founded in 1919. Um, Vanguard University in Costa Mesa, founded in 2020. Another one, 2027. All across the country, there was a fresh breath of faith and renewal and freedom, and that is what set the Roaring Twenties off and running. Now, there was a wild side to the 1920s, but there also was a surge in faith in that time as well. And you know, I just believe that maybe there will be another season like that. And so here's how I want to close. This is not in conclusion. Conclusion has already happened. Okay. But here's a question. As I was thinking about this this morning, this message, a thought just came to my mind um, that there might be some people here that God is speaking to. And so there's, there's, I don't know everybody here, and believe me, I'm not trying to set this up, sweat anybody at all. But there might be somebody here that's not really, you really don't have your eyes on the prize. When you think about the way you're living your life right now, it's just day to day. But you feel the Lord is speaking to you about making a full commitment of your life to the Lord. Okay? Um, maybe everybody here is Christians. I don't know. But maybe you're not. But Scripture tells us if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So first question is this. I'm just going to ask us all to close our eyes for a moment. You're here, and you're just not really where you should be with the Lord. But something inside you is stirring right now, and it's time to get your heart right with God. Let's just make this for someone who has fallen away from the Lord or has never known the Lord. If you were to die right now, you don't know if you would go to heaven. But that needs to change, and that moment is now. And you feel something pounding in your breast right now. Would you just lift your hand up for a moment? I'm going to wait for just a moment.
second question. You're here and God is speaking to you about these four mandates in your life. Or maybe it's another thing he's put on your heart. But you want to roll up your sleeves and be part of the solution as we await the appearing of the Lord. Because we don't know. There might be another season of renewal. And you would like to be part of that. And God is putting on your heart just some way in which you'd like to respond. Can I see your hand? If you're here, God's speaking to you. You're a believer. I see a hand in the back. I see another. 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 Praise the Lord for that. Could we just stand together? And I won't be in a, I won't be in a hurry to hurry out the door. And so if you'd like to talk with me after the service or if you'd like me to pray with you further, I would be delighted and honored. But I'm just going to pray a general prayer over you and there was maybe seven or eight of you that raised your hand. And just pray that the Lord will burn into your heart and your mind a plan of action for what God is speaking into your life. Maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you can sure be included in this as well. But you just pray with me as I pray over you. Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be fully employed in the good work of the kingdom of God. I thank you, Father, that you've spoken to individuals that are here today. I don't know what you may be uh, pressing on their heart and in their mind, but there's something... And I pray, Lord, that they would, uh, they would walk out of this sanctuary with something new and fresh with a divine commission in their life. And they would press on towards that prize. We pray, Lord, that this would be a turning point within their lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now can I bless you with an old Irish blessing? Okay? Stick out your hands towards me. I'll extend them towards you. And it may the road rise to meet you. And may the wind be always at your back. May the rain, may the sun shine warmly on your face. No problem in Overton. And may the rain fall gently on your fields. And may the Lord hold you in the palm of his hand. Until we meet again, may you walk in his blessing. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.